From KIOS in Omaha and Exarbon Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today we have a little bit of a different type of show for you. It's an issues-based show with Omaha attorney Matthew Worsner. It's unfortunate because somebody who can see through the issues and say, this is what the Constitution says, this is how it's supposed to be interpreted in 2020, that person ends up being a better justice, and it's very possible to say, this is the conclusion I want to reach. Uh, how do I make an argument to get there? Worsner and I discuss the Supreme Court, the way that it relates to Nebraska, the legality of decisions made in government, both locally and federally, and we kind of hash out where things should go from here. It's a different, fun, issues-based show. Stay tuned for it right here on Riverside Chats. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. And today we have a show for you that's a little bit different than the norm. It is not somebody who is running for office. Have you gotten tired of that? Do you want more of that? We kind of are going to be uh, (laughs) out of the relevancy of that very soon here. Hopefully you've been enjoying us replaying some of the conversations as you get to know some of the people who want to represent you as humans. Today, though, I'm talking with Matthew Worsner for a legal perspective on the Supreme Court, the legality of decisions made both on a local and federal level, and what he anticipates could be potential solutions for some of the problems that we pretty much all can agree across the line are making government frustrating for the majority of Americans. I do not have legal training, although I often end up talking about legal issues on this show and just in my life as I try to run the country from my couch. So this was a fun conversation for me to be able to get to talk to somebody who has specific training that helps him talk about these issues with a more specifically informed perspective than I sometimes can bring to it. So here is my conversation with attorney Matthew Worsner offering a legal perspective on a variety of issues facing our state and our country right now. Felt that somehow, if I had gone to law school, I'd understand things better. Is that true? Don't don't fool yourself. People (laughs) people think you do, but you end up knowing less than when you went in. But I think you know more. But there's just maybe an incalculable amount of things. Once you get to that next step, you know what you don't know better. I I like to say that I am an infinite pool of useless knowledge. Everybody's that, though. To be fair, I I guess, but. You know, I learned a lot in law school about, you know, property rights in the 1800s that don't exist today and things that have had absolutely no impact on my practice at all. So, so. okay, hold on. Tell me about, in law school, do you specialize quickly or do you have to do like a general law class period? So the the first, I guess let me back up, the ABA, the American Bar Association, sets standards and says you have to have so many credits of this, you have to take these classes, whatever, in order to be an ABA accredited school. So your first year, pretty much every student in the country takes the same classes. Um, after that point, there's still a couple classes, but then you can, that you have to take, but then you can specialize sort of in whatever you want. Um, I didn't have anything that I wanted to specialize in. I just wanted to take whatever classes I thought were interesting. Uh, I took classes on patents and copyrights that have had zero impact on my life. I took classes on uh, poverty law, they called it, but Medicaid, Social Security benefits, things like that has had no impact on my practice at all. Um, But there's, there's also, 
there's there's supposed to be an opportunity to find what you want to do, but I, I didn't do that in law school at all. I just wanted to get in and out <laughs> quickly. So you were interested in patents and poverty law and yeah, they okay. they seemed interesting, and the professors that taught them were very interesting people. Um, I didn't want you know I didn't want to go in and take like a class on criminal defense because I knew I wasn't going to be a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, I suppose it probably would have been a good time to do it because I would never experience it again, but that ship has sailed. So <laughs> maybe next time. But so did it give you, even just in the broad classes you took, uh, a different perspective on the world around you and the sort of intentional way that our systems are set up? Um, absolutely. I think it also made me a little bit cynical, I think, because it's very easy to to look at the cases and the things that you're supposed to read and realize that all of these things are coming up because somebody's being denied something or people are fighting when they shouldn't be. And all you see is negativity. Uh, and law school is a inherently terrible experience. And so that sort of lends itself to, to forming a, a cadre of very pessimistic lawyers. What was something, as an example, that you had either either romanticized or idealized, and then that sort of went away during law school? I, you know, I think I think I fell into the same trap that everybody does. I mean, first and foremost, law school was a complete accident, I guess. I was sitting on the couch watching TV and said, you know what, I guess I should go to law school. I, I was a year out of college and didn't have a, a job yet. And so spending more money uh, sound, sounded like a great idea. But like everybody, I went in thinking I was going to be Johnny Cochran and be you know, a spectacular trial lawyer and civil litigator. And that never ended up materializing for a variety of different reasons. Um, and you know, the only experience that I had had with the law before law school was the same thing for most people, you know, watching Law & Order, Suits, or whatever. But a few good men, surely. Uh, yes. Um, and you come to find out incredibly quickly that that has almost no basis in reality at all. I've never had um, a conversation with somebody walking down a hallway in the courthouse that's like very aggressive. And, <laughs> and you know, I've never made threats to another attorney if they didn't do what I wanted. I, I also didn't... I, I didn't fake my, my bar pass results. <laughs> but, it, you know, I I think law school has changed, though. The old days, I think it was very romanticized. Um, but I think now most people are, they're there to get a degree. They're there to do a very specific thing. It's not fun necessarily anymore. And it's really hard for it to be fun because it's so competitive and it's so difficult in 2020 to get by with you know a high school diploma or a bachelor's degree that you have so much writing on how you do and it it makes it very very stressful yeah well and so one of the things people romanticize a lot is the Supreme Court, and maybe less so recently. I think after two thousand probably people were disillusioned with it, and <laughs> I don't know that it ever recovered, and it doesn't seem like it's on track to really recover a reputation from that. but what's your relationship with the uh, 
the romanticization of the Supreme Court pen? You know, it's it's something that I would I would like to do once. You know, I would like to at least have the experience and say, yes, I did it. I went there one time, but it's not something that I really think about. I, for the most part, I'm realistic in realizing that the Supreme Court has very little impact on what I, a white man, do. And so it, it you know, I'm not, I don't get denied things very often. Um, I don't have to ask for things and, and that I didn't already have. So my involvement and interaction and the um the chance that the supreme court has an impact on my life is is very minimal and maybe i'm in the minority but you know i it it hasn't had an impact i mean i haven't really cared i guess but there's there's been a number of big cases recently that have had a, a very large impact on a large number of people and i'm not tone deaf to that at all but so, I mean, I remember talking to you in the past few years and you had not like necessarily a negative view, but basically a, a more grounded view of the Supreme Court, whereas some, like a lot of people view them as these superhumans who are, you know, incalculably smart. Uh, and it's not to say that they're not smart necessarily, but basically, you know, I think your view is more human. Like they're, they're uh, just they're just people doing their job. Absolutely. And so that's good and bad. And I, I think one thing a lot of people fail to recognize is the justices don't sit up there and know everything no judge knows everything and in fact in my opinion the judge that thinks that he or she knows everything is a very bad judge they have an army of clerks and personnel that keep them apprised of what's going on that do most of the writing and the research for them so that they can seem like superhuman legal geniuses and at the end of the day I think the Supreme Court's job or the Supreme Court Justice's job is just to craft arguments. It's not to know this is what the law is or isn't or what it should or shouldn't be. It's just to make an argument for whatever point that they're they're trying to win on. And I, I think these are people who are very good at making arguments, but they don't necessarily need to be or are very good at knowing what the law is because the law is just too big. There's the, what does that mean? The, I mean, the law encompasses so many different aspects of our lives. There are so many different laws. It's absolutely impossible to know all of them, and it's impossible to know a majority of them. And I, my practice is 100% civil. I don't do any criminal law at all, and I couldn't even scratch the surface of knowing every civil law that was out there and i'm no different than any other lawyer the supreme court justices don't put on a robe and magically just know more it doesn't work that way it is tempting to think that they do though i think maybe because we want there to be people who actually know everything it'd be easy in society if somebody could just do that like a wizard putting on a robe it 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 would be but you know that would mean that they don't get things wrong and the supreme court has gotten things wrong. I mean, Plessy versus Ferguson was precedent for a very long time. Can you explain that for anyone who hasn't heard of it? That was separate, but the whole vein of cases allowing um, the government to have separate but equal facilities, um, it was, you know, slavery is what it was and was out the door. But 
um, people throughout the country didn't necessarily want to be engaged with uh, minorities or, or I guess just generally black people. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, you guys can stay segregated so long as the facilities were equal. And in um, the later years when we realized how horrendously preposterous that was, that was overturned. But the Supreme Court decided that and a majority of them voted and agreed that that was correct. And it stayed the law for a very long time. So in your view then, I mean, there's sort of the dueling ideas. So there's like the originalist concept where it's like everything was great from the very beginning. It was perfect and we just need to adhere to that. And then there's another view, which is just that cultures change, ideas change, norms change, Mm -hmm. morals kind of get applied differently or to more people rather. They get, you know, the the people who personhood applies to uh, broadens in some cases. Right. So, I mean... Your view of the Supreme Court then uh, is more of one where it should be reflecting the change as it happens? Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's difficult for me because I think if I was a if I was a Supreme Court justice, I would probably be more of a textualist than anything because my background is contracts. Most of what I do is trying to write things clearly and precisely and the plain meaning of what the document says is very important to me. However, the plain meaning of the Constitution, more often than not, is borderline gibberish 300 years later. Have you had to get in arguments about commas in you know, like the oh, Bill of Rights? Because I've, I've been dragged into that before. I, I get into arguments uh, about commas and ands versus or all the time. And, I, you know, I'm a stickler for a very small subset of things in in contracts in my practice but words do matter and I think if the framers of the Constitution realized when they were writing it how much the words would have mattered uh, this much later they maybe would have been more careful I've always had a, a disdain for people who like you're saying with Supreme Court justices think that they are these holier than thou super geniuses and I, I have a very hard time with that because there's no possible way that any one of them was Nostradamus and knew that this is what the world was going to turn into. Well, I think it, it goes to the different arguments and it, it depends on whether you buy that the originalist argument is completely genuine, which is that what like when they were writing it, did they intend this to be the bedrock that everything should be based on? a 1770, 1780 perspective on the world or on the country, as opposed to, I mean, we don't live the same way because otherwise it would look closer to like an Amish community in America, (laughs) right? Because how could you legislate cars and things like that, right? Right. I've never been able to understand if there's a through line. And I've just been reading the new Kurt Anderson book and he, he presents a pretty cynical view that it's mainly a way to pick and choose what you like and what you don't like. And you can kind of pretend that there's almost as like biblical reverence for the founding fathers and what they wrote, as opposed to sort of just acknowledging the way things change and what your actual opinions are of, you know, 2020 or whatever. Couldn't agree more, you know, and I, I don't mean it in a way that belittles the originalist side, but I agree. I think it's a very easy excuse to say, well, that's not the, what the framers would have wanted, but it would be really great if, if one of them would walk through the door, if we could pick up the phone and call them and say, gee, what would you have wanted in this circumstance? Well, but okay, if, if we call them and say, what about, you know, airplanes, what should we do there? They'd say, what? Exactly. They get locked up 
in the sanitarium for <laughs> for suggesting something so ridiculous. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the the Supreme Court updates that are just happening. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg just passed away. Um, Amy Coney Barrett has just been uh, appointed, and I'm curious, what's your general take on the Supreme Court right now? So, you know, first and foremost, gosh. Uh, no disrespect to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but her timing was really not that great. Uh, at least as somebody who professed to want to live beyond the, the election, she couldn't have picked a worse time. Um, it's, it's perfectly timed to be a total gray area whether or not a new appointee should be put into place. But at the same time, she served the country a very, very long time. She did a remarkable amount for for women and other groups in the country that had been sort of treated like the lesser of us for a very long time. So she, she deserved the opportunity to uh, retire, and unfortunately she didn't get that. I don't think she wanted to retire, though. No, but somebody who's spent their entire life working um, for the benefit of other people should be allowed to just take a break. And she's a prime example of, at least from the outside looking in, of a lawyer who appears to put their job and their work above everything else. And it's very admirable, but it's a, it seems like a terrible way to live your life because I, I imagine that her, her whole life was consumed by the Supreme Court. And after so many Supreme Court stories, I'm sure Christmas and Thanksgiving, were very boring because that's all she would ever want to talk about. I have no facts to back this up, but it's just it's just what my perception was. But, you know, it's unfortunate that this was when she passed away because it turned the death of somebody who was very famous and very important into a political issue. Um, I had never heard of uh, Judge Barrett before a couple of days ago, which is supposed is a good thing because we're not supposed to hear about judges that are not on the big Supreme Court or that we don't practice in front of. Well, I mean, we, you probably had heard of other contenders like Ted Cruz. <laughs> I wonder, could he vote for himself at his own Senate confirmation hearing? You know, I don't know the answer to that. That's probably why he didn't get nominated, right? Because it hurts the numbers. <laughs> uh, you know, and that probably changes the calculus a little bit of whether or not they nominate him, knowing that right. he can't vote for himself. Like, oh, we're down to 52. And I, I don't know what the rules are, but I'm sure that <laughs> that uh, Mitch McConnell would be able to find a, a Republican governor that could stand in for him. That's Yeah, okay, fair enough. But okay, so it becomes politicized, not just because it's a new appointee and because they're always sort of politicized now, but in particular, we have the standard that Mitch McConnell set up in 2016, which was that Merrick Garland could not be nominated during a lame duck year, as he called it. Right. Um, and therefore, now it's fine because we have the power, I think is basically the argument. Right. Whereas before, they had the power to not give Obama a new Supreme Court justice. Now they have the power to give Trump one. And the rest was all just sort of like, we're going to throw some other arguments at you. And the this issue goes back to my gripe with the Constitution. The plain language of the Constitution says that the president appoints a Supreme Court justice upon the advice and consent of the Senate and does not expand upon uh, that term, advice and consent of the Senate, doesn't expand upon that any further, of course. And so it's up to us to figure out what that means. I don't know if 
if the Senate is abdicating their duties by saying, yes, we won't uh, uh, even vote on Merrick Garland, or if the Senate is violating their duties by saying, well, yep, we're going to push this person through quickly. But who knows? They could be doing exactly the thing that the framers intended them to do. We have no idea. Well, I guess a, a problem that I see in the current setup is if they are violating their duties, who's going to hold them accountable? And does it matter ultimately? You know, the voters are supposed to, but I think that that's a foolish idea to believe that we as voters really have much of a say in elections or, or who ends up in the big S Senate. But, you know, it's also difficult because somebody who's so entrenched like Mitch McConnell, how on earth would the voters be able to get that person out? And beyond that, as much as uh, the left disagrees with him, do you want Mitch McConnell to not be part of the Senate? Just because his ideas are different than yours, he's one of the ranking members of what seems to be everything. He knows more about how the Senate runs probably than any person in the country. I wouldn't want a room filled with a hundred brand new senators because nothing would get done because nobody would have an idea what they're doing. You need a vet to be in there to say, okay, guys, this is how you run the Senate. And there's only a handful of people that I can think of. Mitch McConnell is really the guy who's the vet. And and so it's unfortunate that so many of the things that uh, have happened lately that have been controversial, he's been at the center of. Well, so to connect this to the Nebraska element here, I have uh, quotes from Ben Sass, our senator, who is not really a vet, but seems to, I guess, want to become one now. Uh, when Merrick Garland was nominated, he said to the Lincoln Journal star, let's see, he says, we should step back from the particular nominee and recognize anytime there's a vacancy to the Supreme Court, there's a great opportunity for all of us to educate our kids and the next generation and remind ourselves what the purpose of the Supreme Court is. The Supreme Court is supposed to make sure the rights of the people are being defended. Um, and then he says, there are two constitutional responsibilities whenever there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. The president can nominate and the Senate has the right and responsibility to advise and provide consent. In this case, the nominee is not going to be confirmed. I guess show your work a little bit. Well, he got to the answer, but how did he get there? A question I have for you, because you were talking about how essentially, whether it's the Supreme Court or lawyers in general, the part of the skill is to be able to make an argument. And I think what I'm hearing from Ben Sass, and I I hear it, you know, fairly common, uh, I think fairly commonly from him when he gives statements, essentially is I think he likes to make lawyerly, legal-like sort of arguments, but he's not a lawyer. He's a historian. And so, I mean, what what is he, What what's your read on the language he's using there? Because it sounds like he's saying a lot of things that don't really, it's not really an argument so much as he's just saying a lot and then has a, a thesis at the end. The, the funny thing is, is I tracked him, I totally agreed to it, and then he just concluded by saying a point that I don't understand where it came from. <laughs> I, I, the thing that, that frustrates me is he said everything correct. Uh, the Supreme Court is supposed to defend people's rights that are stated in the Constitution, and the Senate is supposed to provide its advice and consent, but I don't see how he decided uh, Merrick Garland is not supposed to become a Supreme Court justice. And I don't, I can read between the lines 
and understand that that's a Democratic appointee or nominee, uh, and he's a Republican, and so that's why that person's not going to be put forward. But what if, what if Merrick Garland was more of a, a libertarian, or what if Merrick Garland was a moderate? Would the Republicans or the Democrats still act this exact same way? I don't, I'm no expert on Merrick Garland, but my understanding was his reputation is fairly moderate, sort of to like moderate slightly to the left. Right. right? And I was, I was reading earlier this week when I was doing a little bit of research about how there's a scale and a score that the scientists or mathematicians that do these things can tell you how biased a particular Supreme Court judge is. And Judge Ginsburg was one of, if not the most left-leaning judge. And replacing a very left-leaning person with a moderate, in my opinion, would have been a spectacular idea. And it's unfortunate that the Republicans didn't see it that way. Because if the person is a moderate, isn't there a 50-50 chance that they're going to vote Republican on some things and Democrat on other things? Well, I think that that gets to the question of polarization and how intentional that is in our society. You know, like we like to sort of think polarization accidentally just happened uh, rather than, you know, I think a lot of people would rather it be, no, this is the Republican appointee or the Democrat appointee who always is going to vote my way. And I don't really want the issues or genuine consideration of issues. I just want it to be, you know, party dictated party lines. And politicized decisions or decisions based on emotion and feelings become bad law. And that's, it's unfortunate because somebody who can see through the issues and say, this is what the Constitution says, this is how it's supposed to be interpreted in 2020, and this is the right decision to make, that person ends up being a better justice than does somebody who says, well, the Republican base tells me that I'm supposed to be anti-abortion, so that's how I have to decide this one. And it's very possible to say, this is the conclusion I want to reach uh, how do I make an argument to get there? And that really shouldn't be the formula. The formula should be th- the Constitution says this. There's a way to interpret it in 2020 that's reasonable. Here's the result. But uh, like Senator Sass, he started with the answer and then worked his way backwards. And that's just that's just not the right way to do it. Today's episode of Riverside Chats is a conversation with attorney Matthew Worsner about a variety of legal issues from the Supreme Court to Nebraska. We'll be back with more of the conversation after this break right here on Riverside Chats. If you're a fan of Riverside Chats and want to see the show not only continue but expand in new spin-off shows including a film club, a book club, and a news roundup, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash riversidechats. For as low as just $1 a month, you get access to exclusive audio as well as our full backlog of episodes. Our most recent 50 are always free. Older than that goes behind the paywall. So you get that plus exclusive content over at patreon.com slash riversidechats. Please consider becoming a patron today. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Omaha attorney Matthew Worstner for a legal perspective on a variety of issues from the Supreme Court to the legality of various decisions being made by our political leaders here in Nebraska. Here is the rest of our conversation. Now, another thing that I hear as sort of an, an out an extension of some of these problems of polarization on the Supreme Court is if the Supreme Court has all this ultimate authority to, as some people call it, legislate from the bench, uh, is it a good system to have them be undemocratically elected? 
I mean, not to say, I mean, not that people, I guess the question is, one would be, should uh, the average person vote on the Supreme Court justices as opposed to the Senate? Or the other way would be, should it be this sort of random system where once someone dies or retires, then who knows if a president's going to get three appointees? Or should we maybe stagger it? Should we have term limits? But like, is it an undemocratically elected lifetime appointment good for us in general? It's very attenuated. Um, my vote to a Supreme Court nominee. And I don't necessarily know that I would want to vote for a Supreme Court justice because I don't think I would be educated enough and I don't think there's any possible way that I could be educated enough in the pool of justices that would be available. And the, the volume of research that I feel like you have to do in order to make a qualified and educated nomination is it's far more work than I'm willing to do as a voter. And uh, I consider myself at least somewhat interested in how the system works, and so I'd be willing to do a little bit. But I think I'm uh, not the norm. And so the American people voting because there's just four bubbles and they pick one, that's a terrible way to choose a justice. That's how we get Judge Judy on the court. You know, she might not be a bad choice. There quite was frankly. Uh, Christopher Buckley wrote a book that I think was based on that idea, and I can't remember exactly what happened, but I think it was like a president was trying to tank his own reelection campaign, and so he elects you know Judge Judy type to the court. And uh, that's very funny. I I actually I think her in particular she would be a very good choice. <laughs> I I think the Supreme Court probably deals with a lot of BS. And somebody who would cut through the BS and say, no, stop it. <laughs> you hear this, Mitch McConnell? You listening? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I dislike the way that a lot of the Supreme Court justices um, run cases from the bench. I, I lean a lot closer towards Clarence Thomas, who sits there and listens and for years doesn't say a word. And uh, I think... I think Judge Judy would be great at saying, okay, John Roberts, enough with the questions. Let's move on. <laughs> what do you think, though, about uh, shifting away from lifetime appointments? Because it, it. Absolutely. You know, like you were saying before, not, you know, I don't know, once again, if Ginsburg wanted to retire, but she really didn't seem to feel like she could retire. She felt like too much of her personal, you know, too much of the responsibility for what she wanted the country to look like was entirely on her shoulders mm-hmm. of staying alive and staying working. Um, whereas I've heard it proposed before, why, why not do uh, staggered 18-year appointments to the court so that every presidential term, two, uh, two of those terms on the Supreme Court are up, and so they get to nominate two justices? I think, I think it's a spectacular idea. The problem is you have to grandfather in everybody that's already there. So we're talking who knows how long before another person gets put into this system, and then it's entirely possible that one justice on the Supreme Court gets kicked out because they hit their term limit, while another justice gets to stay because they came before it. But I, I'm all in favor of it because I think the predictability and the system is systematization whew, of uh, how Supreme Court justices are nominated and how they uh, leave office, I think that removes a large amount of the controversy and a large amount of the problems that come up when nominating and appointing somebody. But at the same time, it it seems like it it has the opportunity to be very arbitrary, to say, well, it's 10 years are up, see ya. And 
the the thing that I would be concerned about is it's entirely possible that um, we get to a point where there's more than one justice off of the bench or we have an extended period where there's an even number of justices on the bench and if there's a deadlock well that's that's just as bad as there being no supreme court at all um but i don't know that the system right now works so any solution would would probably be better well another one that's getting thrown about is court packing which i believe fdr proposed as a horrible idea why when does it stop? I mean, it's a, it's the slippery slope argument that is seen before the Supreme Court a lot. But if we increase the justices to 15, why don't we then increase it to 21 and then increase it to 33? And then what happens in 100 years when a, the space party controls both houses and the White House and they get to appoint you know, 35, 26-year-old lawyers to the Supreme Court who rule for the next 80 years. It It's a short-term solution, but we need longer-term solutions. And I think that, that that's also what the Republicans are failing to see right now is they need to pick somebody that's going to be a good justice for everybody for a long time. And the Democrats are, are equally at fault with this. They can't seem to see past the election date and can't seem to see past 2021 and more justices causes us problems in the future even if it solves some today so i know you wanted to talk about the history of supreme court appointments were there other notable events or issues that uh caught your eye um no not not necessarily in particular the the one thing that i did note was and, and I didn't know this before, but that the Supreme Court was originally six justices. And that's a bad idea. Because it's an even number? Because it's an even number. And so increasing it to nine is great. I don't know if nine is the sweet spot or not, but it's an odd number. So you can't have a deadlock. Um, it, it's entirely possible to still have a deadlock, but it's, it, it's wildly unlikely. But beyond that, the Supreme Court hasn't really changed a whole lot since the early 1800s, with the exception of increasing the number of justices one time. And that's probably a good thing to some extent, that there's there's predictability and that it's an institution that we can rely on. But I don't know if they had it right in 1789 um, that that should still apply today. And I, th- I think we're seeing um, some more question marks come about about whether or not the the system is the right system. All right, this is probably a good time for us to pivot just to Nebraska. We've we've solved as many Supreme Court mm-hmm. problems as we can from from these yep. mics. Um, yeah. So, uh, what what are your thoughts on Nebraska at the moment? You know, I haven't heard of one single coronavirus case here, so we're doing great <laughs> with that. Yeah, we're in what like stage ten of reopening. Yeah, uh, we don't have to wear masks. We don't have to get inoculated. <laughs> nothing. Um, no, the, the state of Nebraska is in a, a very peculiar spot right now. And it's, it's been in the news that there were certain ballot initiatives that the voters voted for that, um, they don't ultimately get the chance to actually decide whether or not they will become law or become constitutional amendments. And that's, that's very frustrating as a Nebraska voter and as, as somebody who wants to see the state change for the better to see 
what appears to be the stated will of the people thwarted by uh, people who put their interests and potentially special interests above those of the state as a whole. Can, can you specify some of the people you're referring to here? So the in, in case the the viewers, in case the listeners um, aren't aware, there were a couple of different things that were voted on very recently. Um, the two big ones are um, the addition of medical marijuana and gambling. And the voters approved both to end up as... Uh, questions on the ballot and through very quick Nebraska Supreme Court decisions medical marijuana is not even going to be voted on but gambling will and I am not foolish enough to believe that that wasn't done deliberately Um, the my understanding was I believe it was the sheriff in Lancaster County who sued the Attorney General to keep the marijuana initiative off of the ballot. Um, I probably would have voted in favor of medical marijuana, but we'll we'll never know. Uh, the governor was very supportive of the lawsuit keeping medical marijuana off of the ballot, but I don't know that the governor should have a voice um, in this debate, and it's the people that should have the voice in it, but we never got the chance to find out. Well, and this is fairly common, right? I mean, among Governor Ricketts, it seems that there have been several instances where he's not entirely comfortable with what the people have decided they want to vote on or what they have voted on. The the principal one is 2018 when um, Nebraskans voted for Medicaid expansion. And for people that don't know, Medicaid provides health care coverage to low-income people. And Medicaid expansion increased the threshold at which you were eligible for Medicaid. I will tell you that any person who believes that the poverty line is the dividing line about whether or not you are or aren't poor is kidding themselves. And 130% of the poverty line is still a low-income person. And those are people who need health care as much as anybody else does. The Nebraska voters voted to increase the limit, the income limit at which you were still allowed to get Medicaid The governor hasn't actually stopped that from happening, but has done a fantastic job at preventing the implementation of expansion. And it's it's set to happen here in a couple days. However, the people voted on it two years ago, and nearly three years later, we're finally getting it. I understand the governor cited the administrative and technical difficulties with expansion, but I don't know that I buy it. The systems were already in place. All they needed to do was increase the volume of people going through it. That seems like it should be more, no more complicated than hiring more people and buying another server to run the computer system with. Uh, however, here we are, um, and we're finally going to see people getting something that they asked for years later. And that's that shouldn't be something that the governor does the governor is appointed by the people to do what to do the people's bidding and if he's actually and directly thwarting what the people ask for and what they want that's borderline abdication of his duties as governor well so okay let's get more abstract 
for a second here. What is the what's the job of a governor? What are they supposed to do? The the governor is akin to the president. They're the head of the executive branch. They are supposed to take the laws that are given to them by the legislative branch and approved by the judicial branch and carry them out. He's supposed to enforce criminal laws. He's supposed to transact business with other states. Um, very, very similar to uh, the president. He's not supposed to make laws himself, and he's not supposed to decide whether or not the law is right or wrong. His job is purely to execute the law. And is it unusual to have a governor who does do some of those uh, parts, like deciding whether a law is right or wrong, or deciding whether we should revote on something that's already <laughs> been voted on? I, you know, I, in the past, I probably would have said that it is unusual, but no, nothing seems unusual anymore. Um, and there's plenty of legislating that happens by governors and by presidents anymore. And so the, the line between him being the president and him being a judge and him being a senator is really very blurred anymore. And I don't mean to say him in the sense that all governors are hims. There are some, some her governors, and hopefully there are more someday. <laughs> so as far as the current situation with Nebraska, I mean, is this, is this unique to our current governor, or has this been something that uh, previous governors have also sort of blurred these lines? I mean, politicians uh, are always going to try to push their own agenda. Pete, uh, governor Ricketts is not the first person, and he definitely won't be the last. I find it odd that, um, you know, in theory, the people who we represent or the people who we vote to represent us, you would want them in theory, I would think, to have some of the same problems you have. So, like, I had someone on the show um, a month ago who he's in law school and he's running to be in the state legislature. And I thought that seems like a good person to have in that body because he's dealing with problems that a lot of people in the state have. He's not already established. He's not, you know, wealthy. He's mm -hmm. not comfortable in his life stage yet. He's working his way there, right. which a lot of people uh, in that situation, I think you would want the person who makes the laws that affect you to understand your plight. And sometimes it's because they remember it. Sometimes it's because they're going through it. Um, this trend that we have both nationally and locally of electing billionaires to represent us, I find a little bit odd in terms of like, or you're not a billionaire. I'm not a billionaire. I don't think most oh, of us are billionaires. That makes one of us in the country, in the state. Uh, you know, it's, it seems a little bit, convenient to me i mean i get that basically it's a it's a product of the fact that a billionaire has money to run for campaigns therefore it's easier to get availability but i don't know i mean what do you think about this as a, as a form of representation and who should actually be representing us if the sole criteria for being president was being a billionaire michael bloomberg would have been president a very long time ago uh but i i agree with you and i i think that sort of speaks to how diminished your vote and mine actually is anymore I don't know any billionaires and I don't know any CEOs, but they all seem to know each other. And I don't think that that's uh, a coincidence that these people end up being in power and the people that they know end up being in power. And that's, it's unfortunate for people like you and me who aren't part of that club and likely never will be. But, you know, hopefully someday uh, my vote will, will matter as much as it used to. But, I think that our, our rights have been eroded by the volume of money that gets spent on campaign advertisements, financing, so on and so forth. And it, it's it's really very sad. But 
you know, I'm not really quite sure what we're supposed to do about it. I, I can vote as much as I want, apparently, um, as many times as I want. And I don't know that it'll ever really make a difference, which is a very sad and jaded position to take, but it's it's just the state of affairs as, as I see them in, in 2020. So I guess if there's a theme to this conversation, it's the, the loss of innocence for the legal <laughs> right. system, for uh, our, our entire system of government in you some know, ways. I would like, if I had my druthers, I would like all members, at least of the legislature, to be legally trained they don't necessarily need to be a lawyer but they need to be people who they understand what the law is and what it isn't they understand how to write laws they understand what law is impossible to execute and i don't think that it's a good idea to have people that that walk in completely green and a qualification of being rich doesn't make you a good senator but at the same time going to law school doesn't make you a good senator necessarily either. And I, I don't mean to seem very cynical. There are uh, a number of very well-meaning and very successful and very great state senators that we have. Um, I was impacted by one through a client that I had who was, she was unable to get unemployment and contacting her state senator was what actually got the ball rolling and helped her get money that she was entitled to. And, and the only way that that was able to happen was a constituent going to her state senator saying, I need help with a problem, and that problem was solved. So there, there are plenty of people out there that are well-meaning and are doing good and have the ability to do good. I, uh, I had the disillusionment because when I did a Senate internship, I saw the inside, and what I saw was all of the calls and all of the uh, communications that were sent to the certain U.S. senator, it was not a state senator, uh, they got simplified in a computer system. So it would be like, vote yes on this, vote no on that. So you might write a 2,000-word, really impassioned personal letter to your senator, and it would get shortened to four words hmm. in a tally, essentially, or a total number of people who had commented on that one issue. And then so at the end of the day, there's just this sheet of probably 50 issues and then a number next to them. And so uh, the one that I saw specifically was, it was about Betsy DeVos. And so there were honestly 10 to one people uh, reaching out about that, about the issue of whether Betsy DeVos should get confirmed as opposed to any other issue during that like two or three weeks or whatever it was. And it goes to the Senator and the Senator just sees this number and it's very depersonalized. It's not that, uh, you know, there's not really a, a relationship being built with your, the person representing you in that dynamic. And then he did not vote the way that the numbers based on just the spreadsheet said that people wanted him to. And so like, it's an imperfect, it's a, it's not an, it's a, it's an imperfect way of trying to communicate to your Senator to start with, right? Like it doesn't right. tell you a whole lot when you just see a, you know, five words and a number. But it also spoke to just this system where it's like, I, I I like the idea that if you feel impassioned on an issue, you should call your senator. But from what I'm seeing, it's a waste of time. The the difficult thing, though, is I actually like the idea, and I'd never thought about it before this very moment, but I like the idea of the senator having absolutely no idea who their constituent was, who asks them for help with a particular issue, because I think that is a very easy solution for eliminating the politicalization of what a senator does. If the constituent says, I'm having a problem, I'm in your district, the senator's sole job is to help that person with that problem. And if 
if Joe Smith shows up and says, hi, I'm Joe Smith, the Democrat, and Ben Sass, the Republican, sees him and says, well, I'm not going to help you because you're a Democrat, that, that's very unfortunate. Um, so making that interaction anonymous, at least in theory, I like the idea. But in practical terms, I also understand the, the difficulty behind the volume of people that you have to represent. And I am just one lowly lawyer, and the volume of potential client calls that I feel that uh, are, uh, I don't know how to put it nicely, but that don't have a lot of merit to them is borderline untoward. So I can't imagine what a, a senator has to deal with. Uh, I don't know what the solution to that is, so I'm not really very helpful in that. <laughs> That, that's our conclusion but, on all of these issues. Yeah. I think is it'd be good if this changed, but who knows what to do? But your your story is 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 not it. That's not the solution. I don't think. But like you said, we can identify the problem, but we're part of the problem because we can't fix it. <laughs> I don't know. So where does that leave us? We're at the last few minutes here. Oh gosh, I don't. Did know. we learn anything? Did, did anything good happen <laughs> in the news this week? Uh, one thing I guess that I didn't mention that uh, I think is is going to be very interesting is my understanding is Judge Barrett is a not not to go a couple step backwards but Judge Barrett is uh, sounds like very right leaning I would have picked the most moderate smack dab in the middle judge as I possibly could the left and the right are getting farther and farther apart and I don't think that's what the American people want. And, and I, I feel arrogant enough to speak for them generally, but if President Trump had put forward somebody that was right in the middle. That's somebody who's going to make good law for a number of years and is going to vote Democrat sometimes. They're going to vote Republican other times, but they're not going to make controversial law that needs to be overturned later. I think that would have gone a long way. Judge Gorsuch uh, and Judge Kavanaugh have been shockingly moderate in their decisions so far. And so despite the the issues with, with Judge Kavanaugh and his appointment, I would consider them to be good picks because they've they've made decisions that are right down the middle. Uh, and so a third justice that would do the same thing, I think would have left a very positive legacy on the Supreme Court by President Trump. But unfortunately, that's not happened. And I think the tea leaves show that, that Judge Barrett is going to get appointed, whether that's a good or a bad thing, I don't know. But... If I had my druthers, I would like somebody right in the middle. But here we are. Well, here we are is probably a good place to end it. That's sort of been the you know the the theme throughout the whole episode. So thanks you thanks for giving your perspective on perspective. A, a variety of issues today. I'm glad you didn't say expertise. That was attorney Matthew Worsner giving a legal perspective on a variety of issues, both local and national. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarvin Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. You can find our backlog of episodes wherever you get podcasts. I'm Tom Noblock, and as always, thank you for listening.